Bukaman, bienvenue, and welcome to The Musical Man, the podcast that shines new light on the Tony Award for Best Musical. Each week we examine the nominees and winners of that esteemed decoration, and this week we'll be discussing Parade. doing? I know that sounds like a bit of a loaded question. At this point, we are all on this journey together, this long and arduous journey. I hope that you are healthy. I hope the people in your life are healthy. And if you are not, if they are not, I hope that you get better. I hope they get better soon. I hope they get the help that they need. I hope that this country gets its ass in gear in terms of the administration. I hope that we can all uh, find ourselves on the same team for once. I hope that we can just begin to take steps forward in a progressive direction for once. Okay, so this opening segment is not necessarily going to be positive. I'm going to try and find as much positivity as I can within these topics, but I'm just going to warn you right now, I'm not, I'm not interested in sugarcoating anything either. This is tough. You know, there are many consequences for the situation we are in. So one, one consequence is the 74th Annual Tony Awards, which have been officially postponed as of this week. My instinct was that they were going to get canceled outright. So that's the positive spin I have for you in regards to that news item. They have not been canceled outright. We still can cross our fingers and hope that these awards, this ceremony will be able to go on at some point this year. I am very interested to see how the rules of eligibility will be relaxed or changed in light of everything that's happening. I, of course, feel incredibly sorry for all of the people who have lost their jobs, the people who hoped to act on Broadway for shows that had not even opened yet. It's it's an incredibly sad thing to think about, but I, I hope they will get new work in the future. I hope that they can assure themselves that this is not the end of anything. It's just a, it's a stalling. It's a temporary stall. That's what we sort of all have to tell ourselves right now. If we're ever going to get through this, we have to have that hope. We're all in the same boat, so we just got to keep sort of repeating that mantra to ourselves. The other news item I want to address is incredibly sad. We lost Terrence McNally this week. Uh, you might remember Terrence McNally's name coming up during our Ragtime and Kiss of the Spider Woman episodes. He did pass away this week at the age of 81 due to coronavirus-related complications, and that left me reeling to a certain extent because I started to, I mean, I'm a gay man, and I know that there are so many gay people right now who are comparing the coronavirus situation to the AIDS epidemic of the 80s and 90s, and how the government turned a blind eye to it for so long and allowed people to die, and we lost an entire artistic generation of voices and and I'm afraid that that is going to start happening again. That is just a thread that once you start pulling on it, it, you just wind up kind of huddled on the floor. And so I'm going to try and put a positive spin on this. Terrence McNally's work 
was beloved by so many people, and he brought joy and laughter and uh, necessary tears to audiences. He moved them in so many different ways. His body of work is just undeniable. And I, I've seen many people say this. This is not in any way an original thought, but he had a lot left in him, I think. And so I think we just need to consider ourselves lucky. We need to consider ourselves lucky that we had such a strong artistic voice. And yeah, I wasn't a fan of all of his work necessarily, but that's not the point of being an artist, is it? You're, you're not meant to be beloved in all instances, but here's the thing. What an artist would want, I would think, is to have respect and admiration from those around him. And I certainly respected him. I'm glad that we had him for as long as we did. And that's sort of all you're able to say. Once someone passes away, you just kind of have to look back on all the years that you had him and just just say, well, I'm glad that we had him for that amount of time. I know this is all bittersweet. When you mix the sad with the attempts at being positive, you get sort of a bittersweet, <laughs> bittersweet aftertaste. And I do want to move on to the show facts. I just want to let you know before we do that, though, that I am not with Benny or Patty today. We have crossed that line, obviously, where we are no longer willing to be around each other. It's the responsible thing to do. And I hope that all of our listeners are holding to that fact. Social distancing, it's important. Wash your hands. I'm not the only person out there trumpeting these virtues, but we, we want to be as responsible as we can. So I am at home right now. Hopefully this episode will sound just as good as any of the episodes you've heard in the past. Let's get those show facts. Show me the show facts. Parade was a 1999 nominee of the Tony Award for Best Musical. It originally opened on December 17th, 1998 at the Vivian Beaumont Theater and ran for 85 performances. The book, which is based on true events, is by Alfred Uri. Music and lyrics were by Jason Robert Brown, featuring songs by Lowell Mason and William Cowper. It is important to note that this was Jason Robert Brown's first time writing for Broadway, and we will talk about that point later. The director of this production, Harold Hal Prince. Hello, Hal. He also received a conceived by credit for Parade. The musical director was Eric Stern. The choreographer was Patricia Birch. The scenic design was by Ricardo Hernandez, and the lighting design was by Howell Bingley. But don't forget about the sound and costume design. Sound design, Jonathan Deans. Costume design, Judith Dolan. And the original Broadway cast included J.B. Adams, Ray Arana, Rufus Bonds Jr., Carolee Carmelo, Brent Carver, Don Chastain, Jeff Edgerton, John Hickok, Abby Hutcherson, Tad Ingram, Emily Klein, Herndon Lackey, Angela Lockett, Kirk McDonald, Jessica Malaski, J.C. Montgomery, Brooks, Sonny Moraber, Evan Pappas, Randy Red, Christy Carlson Romano, Peter Samuel, Robin Sky, goodness gracious, Don Stevenson, and Torsiglieri, Melanie Vaughn, and John Leslie Wolf. Tony nods. Okay, so. Parade won Best Book of a Musical, Alfred Uri, and it also won Best Original Musical Score, Jason Robert Brown. So, if you're paying attention, Parade won Best Book and Best Original Musical Score. Okay, put a pin in that, too. We got two pins, okay? Okay, so what was it nominated for beyond those two categories? Well, it was nominated for Best Musical, of course, Best Actor in a Musical, Brent Carver, Best Actress in a Musical, Carolee Carmelo, Best Scenic Design, Ricardo Hernandez, Best Choreography, Patricia Birch, Best Direction of a Musical, Harold Prince, and Best Orchestrations, Don Sebesky. So, nine nominations in total, two awards at the end of 
the day. Let's talk about the plot, shall we? Yeah, the plot. As Parade begins, a Confederate soldier says goodbye to the love of his life, a woman named Lila. The violence and deceit of Northern aggressors, ah, oh, those Northern Yankees, has filled this man with righteous fury. He vows to protect Lila and their home of Marietta, Georgia, at all costs. Flash forward to 1913, less than 50 years after the American Civil War had come to an end. The soldier is now a proud, one-legged veteran, marching in Marietta's Confederate Memorial Day Parade. Yes, the Confederacy is very much alive in the hearts of Marietta's citizens, and if anyone has any objections to that, well, they're probably not a true Southerner. <laughs> That's my Southern accent. Leo Frank does not identify as a true Southerner. He's a college-educated Jewish man from Brooklyn who feels deeply uncomfortable around his Marietta neighbors. This mounting sense of alienation has pushed him toward work and away from his wife, Lucille. Their marriage has always been more practical than passionate, but as of late, Lucille has begun to wonder what, if anything, they can offer each other. As his day draws to a close, Leo is approached by Mary Fagan, a 14-year-old girl who works at his pencil factory. Their encounter is brief and uneventful. Mary asks for her pay, and Leo obliges. Hours later, Leo is awoken in the middle of the night by Detective Starnes and Officer Ivy, who escort him to the factory and present a grim picture. Mary has been raped murdered, and deposited in the basement. The factory's night watchman, a black man named Newt Lee, claims he discovered the body and tried to call Leo at home, though no one answered. Both Newt and Leo are brought in for questioning shortly before Mary's mother learns of the child's death. Leo's prospects spiral as influential figures take an interest in the case. These include Britt Craig, a reporter who whips Marietta into a frenzy by painting Leo as a monster, as well as Hugh Dorsey, whose poor track record as a prosecutor compels him to identify the murderer as soon as possible. Dorsey's strained relationship with Georgia's governor, John Slayton, does little to relieve this pressure. The question soon shifts from who killed Mary Fagan to who should Hugh Dorsey pin the murder on. Newt Lee is viewed as a less than compelling suspect, if only because Dorsey assumes people won't be satisfied with the lynching of yet another black man. With this in mind, he opts to focus all of his attention on Leo. A conspiracy begins to form. The pencil factory's janitor, Jim Conley, agrees to testify against Leo after Dorsey threatens to reveal his status as an escaped convict. Teenager Frankie Epps testifies falsely that Mary often complained about Leo's lecherous behavior. Frankie's story is then corroborated by Eola, Essie, and Montine, girls who worked with Mary at the factory. Factor in a tearful display from Mary's mother, Jim Conley's grisly depiction of the murder, and Dorsey's portrayal of Leo as a child labor profiteer turned rapist, and a guilty verdict seems inevitable. Nonetheless, Leo and Lucille are devastated when the jury convicts him to hang. Act 2 finds Leo largely stumbling through his appeal process. His time is running out, and though Lucille offers to help in any way she can, he pushes her away out of despair. But Lucille isn't willing to keep her mouth shut. She confronts Governor Slayton and convinces him to reopen the case, a decision that leads to startling revelations. For example, the girls of the factory admit to being intimidated and coached by Dorsey, and Jim Conley's testimony doesn't align with medical evidence. Faced with these inconsistencies, Governor Slayton agrees to commute Leo's sentence from death to life in prison. 
Sometime later, Lucille visits Leo at a prison work farm in Milledgeville, Georgia. Leo was ecstatic upon hearing of his wife's success with the governor, and though this experience has been traumatic for the couple, it has also revealed how much they love and need each other. Their happiness proves short-lived. Leo is kidnapped by a mob composed of, among others, Frankie Epps, Detective Starnes, Officer Ivy, and one of the prison guards. They transport Leo back to Marietta and hang him from a tree, though only after he begs Officer Ivy to give his wedding ring to Lucille. The ring is delivered anonymously to Britt Craig, who takes it to Lucille while expressing his regrets. This is the part of the plot I do not buy. Britt is portrayed as a capital V villain who is practically begging for Leo to hang from moment one, so you'll excuse me if I find it hard to accept his sudden change of heart. Oh, gee, I didn't realize they'd actually go through with the hanging. Shut up, Britt. Parade concludes with Lucille telling Britt of her plans to stay in Georgia. She refuses to run or hide from the people who murdered Leo, even if they've already wiped their hands of his blood. Dorsey has been elected as the new governor of Georgia, the Confederate Memorial Day parade is in full swing once more, and Lucille is left alone to sit with her grief. Now, as I said a moment ago, Parade is based on true events, so I would like to move beyond the scope of the musical and take a moment to provide this info from Leo Frank's Wikipedia page. Quote, During the trial, Atlanta musician Fiddlin' John Carson wrote and performed a murder ballad entitled Little Mary Fagan. An unrecorded Carson song, Dear Old Oak in Georgia, sentimentalized the tree from which Leo Frank was hanged. Quote. Here's another quote from Wikipedia. Quote, Several photographs were taken of the lynching, which were sold as postcards in local stores for 25 cents each. Also sold were pieces of the rope, Frank's nightshirt, and branches from the tree. In the postcards, members of the lynch mob or crowd can be seen posing in front of the body. Local newspapers did not publish the photographs because it would have been too controversial, given the lynch mob can be clearly seen and the lynching was being condemned around the country. Quote, yes, how inconvenient for the people who agreed to pose for those goddamn fucking photographs. Two attempts were made throughout the 1980s to secure a pardon for Frank. The first was inspired by testimony from Alonzo Mann, who had worked at the pencil factory as a boy and witnessed Jim Conley carry Mary Fagan toward the basement. This aligns with the perspective of most historians who believe Jim Conley was Fagan's killer. Despite Alonzo Mann's new testimony, the Georgia State Board of Pardons and Paroles concluded that, quote, after exhaustive review and many hours of deliberation, it is impossible to decide conclusively the guilt or innocence of Leo M. Frank. For the board to grant a pardon, the innocence of the subject must be shown conclusively. Quote, an editorial in the Atlantic Constitution responded to the board's decision by stating, quote, Leo Frank has been lynched a second time. Quote. A second application for pardon was met with success in 1986, though it came with a qualifier. Per the board, quote, without attempting to address the question of guilt or innocence, and in recognition of the state's failure to protect the person of Leo M. Frank and thereby preserve his opportunity for continued legal appeal of his conviction, and in recognition of the state's failure to bring his killers to justice, and as an effort to heal old wounds, the state hereby grants to Leo M. Frank a pardon. Quote, Historical markers acknowledging the life and death of Leo Frank were erected by the Georgia Historical Society and the Jewish American Society for Historic Preservation in 2008 
and 2015. So for the purposes of this episode, I listened to the 1998 original Broadway cast album of Parade. Now I understand that copies of the 2007 original London cast album are going for about $35 a pop on Amazon right now, but I'm not especially interested in giving money to Amazon right now. I say that. I've been renting movies all week. I'm such a fucking hypocrite. The London album is also available in full via YouTube. I know, but to be honest, I only have so much time in the weekend. This week has been wild. So many ups and downs. You see in the news? I'm sure the London album is great, and I will likely sit down with it at some point in the future when my mind is more how do we say, settled. And I also watched the Tony Awards performance of This Is Not Over Yet and The Old Red Hills of Home. I've always had mixed feelings when it comes to Brent Carver's portrayal of Leo here, but that skepticism is not coming from a place of objectivity. This Is Not Over Yet was assigned to me during an acting class in college, and I fell in love with it immediately. I loved performing that song. When I watch Carver's rendition, my brain has a hard time accepting his choices over mine. Oh, that's not how Leo would act. Clearly, Carver should be taking acting tips from me. My brain is arrogant and also wrong. Carver's Leo Frank may not be my Leo Frank, but I've grown to appreciate his confidently effeminate, loose physicality. I especially like how his head seems to float and bob as if it were a balloon tied to his body. To be clear, I've never had an issue when it comes to Carver's voice, because those vocals? I mean, come on. Other stray observations regarding this Tony's presentation. Carolee Carmelo is commanding that space, is she not? She's standing behind this tiny desk, and it might as well be the helm of a battleship. Go, Carmelo! Go, go, go! That's Tad Ingram as Officer Ivy, right? His delivery is too outsized for my liking. It's like he's channeling Foghorn, Leghorn. No thanks, Tad. No thanks. Lastly, I always think of Parade's ensemble as being made up of 50 people, if not more. The IBDB lists 25 people actually in the ensemble, and only 12 make an appearance here, but they still pack an astonishing choral punch. It bowls me over is what it does. Okay, let's start talking about the score. We have a lot to talk about here. Let's get a clip of the prologue, which is The Old Red Hills of Home. Farewell, la, la, la. I'll write every evening I've come our names in the trunk of this tree. Farewell, my Lila. I miss you already and dream of the day when I'll hold you again in a home safe from fear when the Southland i 
of home. Pray on this day as I journey beyond them, these old red hills of home. Let all the blood of the north spill upon them till they by making a bold claim. Parade is the best show Jason Robert Brown has ever written. It's better than The Last Five Years and The Bridges of Madison County, which are excellent. Better than Songs for a New World, which I consider to be fairly overrated. And much better than 13 and Honeymoon in Vegas, which are mm, serviceable? I can't speak to the quality of Urban Cowboy, as it's a musical that, for all intents and purposes, does not exist. My affinity for Parade is validated whenever I listen to The Old Red Hills of Home. I give myself over to it so completely that I have to remind myself to breathe. I'm not kidding. I feel the air being held in my lungs, and I have to consciously, carefully release it lest it come out as a cry or a shout. It's scary in a way to experience that level of thrill, especially when the lyrics take a right turn into outright jingoism. I love how the song is a trap in that way. It's amazing. Just when you've given yourself over to the music, those lyrics come around to sober your stupid ass up. Right, you think, this isn't a fight song for some football team. It's an anthem for the damn Confederacy. Remember, kids, hate groups invest in branding themselves as elites and martyrs because it makes recruitment easier and it helps them sleep better at night. Don't fall for their songs and their parades. These men belong in zoos. Sorry. It's like they've never joined civilization. The Jews are not like Jews. I thought the Jews were Jews, but I was wrong. I thought I would be fine. But four years down the line, with every word, it's very clear I don't belong. I don't cuss, I don't draw. So how can I call this home? And I'm free of the southern breeze Free of magnolia trees And endless sunshine Evermore lives the dream of Atlanta But not mine Not mine A Yankee with a college education By his own design is trapped inside the land that time forgot. Oh, 
Stopped inside this life and trapped beside a wife who would prefer that I said howdy, not shalom. Well, I'm sorry, Lucille, but I feel what I feel, and this place is real. So how can I call this home? Okay, so full disclosure, I tackled a lot of parade material throughout college. I sang This Is Not Over Yet for one class. I performed How Can I Call This Home, which you just heard, for another class. And our musical theater troupe, which I have talked about in the past, our musical theater tour troupe, that was the official name of it, we staged the trial sequence when I was a junior. Who did you play, you might be wondering? Well, I played Leo, thank you very much. This decision was not readily accepted by another member of the troupe, I should say. He was quite annoyed by it, actually, but I'm not here to air moldy laundry. I'm here to say I loved playing Leo and would readily accept the part today. Perhaps some of you out there could arrange a Zoom production of Parade? Huh? Maybe? Let's get together via Zoom and hammer out the Zoom details. Zoomy Zoom Zoom! How Can I Call This Home is a wonderful character piece because it refuses to gloss over Leo's disagreeable personality. He's prickly. He's a snob. He may feel at odds with the people of Marietta, but he also thinks of himself as being above those people. Everyone is kept firmly at arm's length, even Lucy but when you consider everything Leo is about to go through, that self-imposed isolation starts to make sense. Leo's not really a crank at heart. He simply understands that a town like Marietta, like so many towns, is not designed to protect him as a Jewish man. When you're a member of a minority community, you learn early on that hatred can take a thousand forms and strike from any direction and at any time. And once you have that knowledge, you sharpen your instincts and harden your heart. It's the only way you'll survive moving through a world that is not interested in ensuring your safety. Jewish people understand this, women and people of color and LGBT plus people understand this. I get why Leo doesn't make other people a priority, but when his suspicions are confirmed and his anxieties are validated, it still hits me like a knife to the gut. I don't want Leo to be right, but he is. He's right. He's right to be suspicious of the people in this fucking town. We can prepare ourselves for that kind kind of pain, that betrayal, but it won't make it hurt any less. Before we move on, I want to highlight the following lyrics from How Can I Call This Home. Quote, the Jews are not like Jews. I thought that Jews were Jews, but I was wrong. Quote, this says a lot about Leo and where he may have stood in regards to a real conflict that was brewing within the American South at this time. Throughout the late 1800s and early 1900s, rabbis like David Marks were focused on the issue of assimilation, ensuring Jewish citizens were properly settled into and accepted by American society. Rabbi Marks went so far as to redesign a reform temple so it would appear more American, or presumably more like a Christian church. Problems arose when German Jews, who felt they had properly assimilated, came up against immigrant Jews from Russia. Rabbi Marx described the Russian immigrants as, quote, barbaric and ignorant, quote, and blamed them for increases in anti-Semitic violence. Would the Leo Frank of Parade have sided with Rabbi Marx? I should say Rabbi Marx was based in Atlanta, based in Georgia, so this is all very much 
within the same atmosphere, this environment. Like I said, you know, hate can take a thousand terrible forms, and Leo is not presented to us as this perfect martyr figure. So, you know, when he says, when Leo says the Jews are not like Jews, I thought that Jews were Jews, but I was wrong. You have to wonder how he sees himself in comparison to other Jewish members of his community. It's interesting to think about. I'm just saying. In the mines and the mills and the Mexican hills, they've got stories to tell. Look, now Ohio's afloat, soon the women will vote, and we'll all go to hell. Look, now that Wilson is in, and old Taft didn't win. Hell, they're coming to blows. Estimates approved on the street. They're building churches out of high-grade concrete. Look at that! They say the rain will give a break from the heat. It's a scoop. It's a twist. It's a reason to exist. Pray to heaven. Pray to Zeus. are not interested in my playing Leo, I hope they can at least see me in the role of Brit Craig. Because Jesus Christ does big news slap. Big news slaps so fucking hard. I would sink my teeth into this here number like it's a ham bone and never let go, I tell you what. Audiences wouldn't know what to do with me. Critics would describe my performance as borderline pornographic. Oh my god, somebody stop him, he's out of control! Oh, tell it to your stuffed shirt, Grandma. Big news is for actors who can't choose between going big or going home because they have no home to go to. They don't go big, baby, they are big! She had two crooked teeth. She had cuts on her fingers.
fully prepared for Parade's funeral sequence, in which the children of Marietta reflect on their time with Mary Fagan, every memory is as small and delicate and uncomplicated as the child who shares it. She had two crooked teeth. She had cuts on her finger. She knew how to read. These statements mean more than any eulogy because they prove these kids saw Mary as a person, and as long as they treasure those details, Mary won't be reduced to a mere victim or symbol. When I die, I hope people remember me in this way. It seems so much more meaningful somehow. So give them fangs, give them horns, give them scaly hairy palms, have them drooling out the corner of his mouth. He's a master of disguise, check those bug out creepy eyes, show that fella's gonna rape the whole damn insights when it comes to real big news, which serves as a follow-up to Britt Craig's initial showstopper, but I would like to compare it to songs from two other musicals, and we haven't done that in a while. First, we both reached for the gun from Chicago. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, we both, oh yes, we both, oh yes, we both reach for the gun, the gun, the gun, the gun, oh yes, we both reach for the gun, for the gun. Oh yes, oh yes, oh yes, they both, oh yes, they both, oh yes, they both reach for the gun, the gun, the gun, the gun, oh yes, they both reach for the gun, for the gun. And second, When It All Falls Down from Chaplin. But what you're gonna do when it all falls down? Cause I let a little rumor spread. <laughs> what you're gonna do if I change the name of the person sleeping in your bed? What you're gonna do when I tell the tale that makes the country turn its head? Just a little gossip and just a little lie I'll simply say the little tramp is just a little spy And what's he gonna do when it all falls down? All of these songs concern savvy charlatans and their ability to warp public perception through the power of narrative. That's it. That's the tweet, as the kids say. I told you my observation wasn't especially deep. But is anyone else annoyed by how obviously Chaplin is nipping at the heels of Parade with that song when it all falls down? Come on. No one was brave enough to call it out before today. But I'm calling the Chaplin team, Chaplin, Chaplin team out. You don't know this man. You don't even try. 
When a man writes his mother every Sunday, pays his bills before they're due, works so hard to feed his family, there's your murderer for you. And you stand there spitting words that you know aren't true. But you don't know this man. I don't think you could. You don't have the right to know a man that wise and good is a decent man. He is an honest man. And you Carmelo has already received a bit of praise for her performance, but now it's time to heap even more praise on Carolee Carmelo. For too long, I've overlooked how much she brings to the role of Lucille, and so the buck must stop here. Did you get a load of that voice? If Carolee Carmelo was a bird, she'd be a mighty quail, I do say, shaking with fury as her song cuts through the silence of a dark, somber night. Moving past my salient bird analogy, I'll assert how Carolee Carmelo should have won the Tony Award for Best Leading Actress in a Musical. She was nominated for it, if you remember, but she did not win it. Voters gave it to Bernadette Peters for her performance. Her performance? Come on. In Annie, get your gun. Folks are down where I come from. They ain't had any learning. Come on. And to those voters, I say, come on. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Why don't you come up to my office? Got a couple of things you might like to see. Why don't you come up to my office about 2.15 till a quarter to three? If you could maybe swing by, honey, well, you know it'd be okay with me. If you came, if you came, if you came, if you came to my office. Why don't you come up to my office? Got a bottle of wine and the cork ain't pop. Why don't you come up to my office where it's nice and cool and the blinds are dropped? If you could maybe swing by, honey, then that bad old clock is stopped. If you came, if you came, if you came, if you came to my office. I, I know this new dancer they're doing in Manhattan. I'll get you dancing like you've never done before. And I'll give you things that they sent me from Manhattan. And if you like, like I'm more, and like I'm more. Come on and come up to my office, got a fine fried chicken with biscuits for two. Come on and come up to my office, got lots of things I've been walking through. Just take a break between my honey, no one has to know but me and you. That you came, that you came, that you came, that you came. When you came, when you came, when you came, when you came. If you came, if you came, if you came, if you came. So come on. Come on, come on, come on. Why don't you come up and come on and come up to my? Why don't you come up and come on and come up to my? Why don't you come up and come on and come up? Come on and come up, come on and come up, come on and come up, come up and come up. Come up 
up to my office is an unabashedly theatrical number that does away with reality and replaces it with a nightmare, one we assume is playing out in the minds of those who view Leo as a predator. He's a lusty, dangerous, mad with power, but what does that look like in terms of staging? How do you effectively convey the terror of the situation? Let's explore our options by putting on our conical director caps, huh? I've got mine on. Do you have yours on? Okay, pay attention. I came across a production of Parade on YouTube that saw Leo chasing after girls like a wolf goes after sheep. Lots of running, 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 running. Moments later, he was manipulating them like puppets, forcing them to dance for his amusement. It was all quite busy, and that may be effective for some, and I get why a director would want to match the freneticism of the score with a similarly breathless stage picture, but I would encourage a certain level of restraint here. Leo should remain as still and calm as possible, in my opinion, and every advance must be carefully executed. I realize this will sound like a joke, but it's not meant to come off as one. Think about what Joe Biden wouldn't consider offensive. Massaging your shoulders, cupping your chin, smelling your hair. I want to ensure audiences zero in on these interactions because it forces them to process what Leo is accused of doing, and a faster, more choreographed or stylized routine would only blunt and blur that effect. I kid about using enormous budgets to blow out some of the musicals we cover, but I really do think of myself as a director who reduces. Reduce, reduce. Make it cleaner, make it sharper. For the record, I have directed exactly one play in my lifetime, and that was back in college. Oh, college. <laughs> but I know in my heart I would be a good, finicky director. Ooh, I would be so finicky. And he said, no, no, it ain't my fault that girl is dead. He said, no. No, that's what he said. He said no, no. And his eyes were wild and his face was red. He said no, no, that's what he said. He said that's what he said. He said gotta get her out, let's get her out. That's what he said. That's what he said. And so I found me this old gunny sack and raptor. He said you're a good boy, Jim. I know you won't tell no one nothing. Here's a hundred dollars. Took the elevator down. He said, just throw her on the ground. That's what he said. That's what he said. Yes, he said, no, no, no. no. There ain't no reason I should hang. He said, no, no, no. That's what he said. He said, no, no, There ain't no reason I should hang. You got money in your pocket, and there's plenty more of that. I got wealthy friends and family, and a wife dumb and fat. And I got rich folks out in Brooklyn, if I need somewhere to go. questions and observations regarding the character of Jim Conley are painfully stupid, and so I'm going to share them with you now, lest I come off as someone who's reasonably intelligent. Question one, why is Rufus Bonds Jr.'s performance as Jim Conley so broad, especially during this number? That's what he said. It's positively goofy. Answer, he's performing for the jury, okay? The whole point of having Jim testify against Leo is to scare the shit out of people and ensure a conviction. 
Jin. It's actually great, because by going this big, Jim can sneak in a few jabs at rednecks without anyone noticing. All these white people see or need is a raving black man who can validate their fears, and that's exactly what Jim is giving them. The scene doesn't call for subtlety. The question you should be asking is, why do you enjoy Evan Pappas' performance as Britt Craig when it's arguably just as unhinged as that of Rufus Bonds Jr.? Recognize your double standards, Jonathan. Zip it. Question two. Why would Jim Conley testify against Leo to avoid an escape from prison charge if he's only going to be imprisoned as an accomplice to murder? Answer, the story set in the early 1900s. I don't think Jim had much of a choice in the matter, Jonathan. He probably knew dozens of white men who threatened his life and freedom. What did you expect him to do? Negotiate? Haggle over a better deal? A nicer, cozier deal? Zip it. Question three, did a white guy play Jim Conley when my musical theater tour troupe staged this trial sequence? Answer, absolutely, and it was terrible and offensive. It's colorblind casting. Oh, come on, we, we have an Asian woman playing Frankie, don't you see? It's all up for grabs. Zip it, zip it, just zip it, zip it. That'll make you nervous Won't do nothing with a look or a mention And they won't ever pay attention They never say, my, my, my They gonna say, bring me my boots Bring me my tea I bet you don't sleeves for free Rumblin' and a Rollin' focuses on a number of Marietta's black citizens, including Jim Conley and Newt Lee. The sentiment they express is realistically cynical, that no one would care about Leo Frank's life or Mary Fagan's death if either of them had been black. Marietta has found itself overwhelmed with white activists from the North, and while they're busy shouting about the perils of a broken justice system, the black people who serve them are forced to reckon with their resentments in 
silence. This dichotomy is undeniably interesting, but it never gets addressed again and winds up feeling like a footnote. Maybe this is for the best, though. Jason Robert Brown's attempts at reflecting black voices and black perspectives are about as clumsy as those of any white composer, but this song comes off as particularly tone-deaf. There's a level of aggression directed at Leo that makes the black ensemble seem uniformly unempathetic, even heartless. It's monolithic by design. By comparison, the white characters represent a wide spectrum of response when it comes to the question of Leo's guilt. So it's not a great look when literally every black character has the same attitude, this fuck Leo Frank attitude. It's, it's just weird. I'm not asking for a nice black character to step forward and teach their peers a lesson in kindness that would be just as condescending and insane. But come on, why are the black characters operating as a hive mind here? It's bizarre. For all I know, I could be missing some crucial bit of context that would cast this material in a better light. But for now, I'll chalk my reservations up to Jason Robert Brown's limits as a white composer. You literally can't write for everyone. That's just the truth. when it comes to writing love songs for musical theater. Jason, Robert, goddamn Brown, that's who. Writing a memorable love song is an extremely difficult task, but Brown gets it done like he's bringing in the laundry. Another load of fresh, sweet-smelling love songs for you, Mr. Partisek. Oh my god, Jason, how do you do it? Oh, these are wonderful. Oh, I suppose love's my specialty is all, Mr. Pernasek. Hey, did I ever tell you about my ex-girlfriend? The one who inspired the last five years? Oh, it started out oh, so wonderfully. Uh, actually, I'm good, Jason. You sure? You sure? Yep, yep, yep. Just put those love songs down anywhere, Jason. Thank you, Jason. Goodbye, Jason. Oh, woof. The man's talented, but I wouldn't want to date him, you get me? I want to talk about two more tracks from the OBC album before we close out this part of the show. First, I want to hear a bit of Shema. Let's hear that. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kvot Marcoso Leolam Vaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaaa
so I just want to provide the translation of that traditional prayer. So the words that you heard translated mean, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. That track is quite meaningful to me because I just realized when I listened to it how meaningful prayer is in moments of extreme duress and extreme tension and anxiety when you are reduced to a position where you have no sense of safety and everything has been robbed from you, like Leo. I understand why people turn to prayer in moments like that. And whenever I listen to this track, it just moves me, and I wanted to I wanted I wanted to make sure that we heard a bit of it, and I wanted to ensure that we got that translation. Because when I heard it this time, this week, I wanted to I was curious. I just wanted to know what that translation was. And now I know. Let's get a little bit of the finale, which is of course the final track on the OBC album. Leo, oh Leo, I know he'll protect you. And don't be afraid, I'll be fine here, you'll see. And you're holding my arm And you're stroking my hair And you're finally Mr. Frank? What is it? I wanted to focus on the finale is that there is a moment where Mary Fagan in a flashback says happy Memorial Day to Leo Frank and that moment absolutely kills me. I just the fact that the show in that moment shows you what really happened between them. This interaction between these two people was so it was banal in a way but she had this cheerfulness about her she meant him well, she wished him well and we didn't know that until these final moments after Leo has already been killed and that that just destroys me I, the delivery of that line Mr. Frank, happy Memorial Day ugh, it just gets me every time. Okay that's it, that's all we have for you terms of the deconstruction of the score. Now, normally we would hear from our sponsor, 5678 Coffee, at this time, but we have a brand new $10 a month patron. It's true. That patron is Jonathan, and they deserve a musical shout-out for their generosity, right? Of course they do. So, let's get that musical shout-out now. Hiya, fellas. How you doing? How you doing? Hey, fantastic. Hey, hello, hey. How's everybody going? How's everybody going? <laughs> yes, oh, hello. Yes, 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 it's me. Hello, we haven't seen each other in months. Yes, okay, hello, you're talking to me. Hello, okay, all right, so here's the microphone. Fantastic. Uh, stop looking at my legs, all right? Stop looking at my legs. Ah, Stevie, Steve-o, you in there, Steven? Yeah, I'm, I'm in here. I'm, I'm, yeah, hi, Elaine. What time is it, Steven? It's, it's four in the morning, Elaine. Four a.m., huh? Perfect. Okay, what a time for a take. I'm a little nervous. Don't be nervous, Elaine. I'm sure you're going to be great. Oh, you think? Uh, okay, uh, that's nice. Okay, all right. Nice of you to say. Let's try it. Okay, we ready? Let's try it. I would like to eat some toast. Here's to the patrons who brunch. Jonathan will laugh.
Can I stop you for a second there? What? What? Wait, what's, what's I wrong? I mean, he's actually supposed to laugh at that? Is that we're assuming? We're assuming this kid, this kid, Jonathan, he's going to laugh at that? One can only hope, Elaine. Sure, sure. <laughs> One can only hope. That's funny, Stephen. That's funny. It's nice to have faith. I apologize. Let's take it again, okay? Take two for Elaine. Take two. Okay. I would like to eat some toast. Here's to the patrons who brunch. Jonathan will laugh. I don't know. It doesn't feel good. Doesn't feel good to me. Sorry to stop you again, but it doesn't Elaine, feel good I, to me. I'm thinking you should take the hat off. Why don't you try taking the hat take off? Take the hat off? Okay, okay. You know, I, I was wondering about that myself. Okay, take three. Fuck the hat. <laughs> I said fuck. I said fuck. Okay, all right. Take three. Fuck the hat. I would like to eat some toast. Hey, Sondheim? Yes, Elaine. How about we take it down a half step, see how that feels, huh? Take it down a half step? Uh, sure, I mean, we should get options, so uh, fine, that's fine. Take it down a half step, that's fine. Right, well, I gotta take it down a half step, everybody. You hear that? Okay, let's do it, okay. <clears throat> Had to clear my throat there. Let's start again from the top, okay. I would like to... I think we have that part, Elaine. Let's just, let's skip that part. Let's just go to here's to the patrons. Let's just start there. We'll do, Steve-O. We'll do, okay. Here's to... No, to have a step down. Here's to the patrons who... You know, hamster, I can see you shaking your head in there, okay? I mean, what is it? Do I have to... What, what, what do I stink or something? Fill me in here. Come on. Let's just try it again from the top, Elaine, okay? Sung this time. Sung? Song, he says. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Song. All right. I'll sing it. I'll be smashing this time. Okay. I swear. Okay. Hey, come into the booth. Just come into the booth and listen to what we have so far. I need you to listen to this. Nothing I want to do more, Stephen. Okay. All right. Coming over to you now. Okay. Make way, everybody. Make way. Okay. All right. Andy, do me a favor. Call the twink at the New Rochelle Hotel and tell him to take the apple out of his mouth and the cork out of his ass. I'm, I'm not going to make it. <laughs> I'm here. Okay, I'm in the booth. Hello. Hello, you. Hello, you. Okay, so play it for me, Honda. Play it for me. I would like to eat some toast. Here's to the patrons. Well, this is garbage. Jonathan I understand what you're trying to say to me. It's garbage. I'm just screaming. No, you're, you're doing fine, Elaine. Wrong. You're wrong. Elaine, it's late. Why don't we just have you go home and we'll lay down an orchestral track. You'll come in tomorrow. All right, you'll, I'm sure you'll be fantastic. No, can't do, Gummo. I feel like I've got one take left in me, and we're going to do it now. We're doing it now. Okay, make way, boys. Have a, LA's coming back into the studio. Back into the studio. That's right. Okay, all right. Back into the studio. Back. There we go. Okay, we're coming back. Hello, boys. Hello. It's me, Elaine, again. <laughs> you looking? Oh, what? Uh, you looking at the legs again. Uh, stop it. Stop looking at the legs. I, I don't know what you want me to do with her. I, I can't work like this, Andy. I, I'm what? My finger is on the button? What do you mean, my finger is on the button? What, are you coming on to me? Oh, the button. Oh, right. What, what do you mean, Now? She can hear me now? She can hear this? She can hear it! She can hear it, Charlie Brown. She can hear it. Okay. Hey, Soupy! Yes, Elaine? How's about I come in tomorrow? Huh? I was thinking about it on the way here on my little journey. Maybe you and the fellas can put down an orchestral track for me? I'd be a dear, be a box of chocolates? 
I think that sounds great, Elaine. Good work today. Yeah, goody, goody. All right. You're an old sourpuss, boys. I'm leaving. Uh-oh, you got to say goodbye to me. And you know what a gentleman does when a lady leaves the building, don't you? Everybody rise. Rise. Come on, everybody. Rise. Open the door. Rise. Ah, bye. Rise. Just make the call, okay? Get the cork out of his ass. I'm worried about infection. Final thoughts regarding Parade. As a reminder, Jason Robert Brown had never written a musical for Broadway before Parade, a show we can all agree would be very hard to unpack when starting from scratch. Forget about the intricacies of the murder trial. How do you address all of the voices and competing interests that affected its outcome? How do you cover all of the underlying social issues it made us face? And how do you do all of this efficiently, effectively, and in a way that entertains your audience? Only someone with a strong sense of ambition would agree to take on a project like Parade, and for the most part, I believe Brown followed through on the promise of that ambition. He doesn't keep all of his plates spinning as smoothly as I would like, see my comments on black representation, but it's an impressive display of showmanship and multitasking nonetheless. Speaking of representation, what I really appreciate about Parade is how the death of its lead character is not dressed up as an educational moment for humanity. See Miss Saigon. See Once on this Island. See Ragtime. Leo's death is presented for what it is, a crime and a travesty. It does not cure anti-Semitism. The people of Marietta do not collectively hang their heads in shame at the sight of his corpse. And beyond Lucille, the only person who's affected by Leo's death is Britt Craig, a guy who generally feels crummy about the whole situation. Oh, my bad. I'm just happy that A, Leo doesn't turn into a tree, and B, we as the audience aren't allowed a reprieve from this awful outcome. Parade's final moments focus squarely on a grieving Lucille as her neighbors, more oblivious and self-satisfied than ever, walk right by her. It's hard. It's unflinching. Can you imagine the alternative? Lucille steps down to the apron and says, yes, our tale is a sad one, but take heart. My husband was pardoned in the 1980s and got his own historical marker in 2008, the same year Obama was elected. Oh, Obama. We're having fun, but I imagine someone must have floated this idea at some point. Now, in 1999, the winner of the Tony Award for Best Musical was Fosse, and the additional nominees that season were The Civil War and It Ain't Nothing But The Blues. I think we all remember my stance when it comes to how the Tony Awards should work. Ah, remember how I told you to put one pin in Jason Robert Brown and one pin in the Tony Awards? Well, we've already removed the one pin, and now we're removing the second. Well, we're moving the second, I tell you. Oh, it's true. If your show manages to win Best Book and Best Original Score, you deserve to walk home with the Best 
musical medallion. Into the Woods was beaten out by The Phantom of the Opera despite its victories in the book and score categories, and here we see that same pattern repeating itself with Parade and Fosse. I'll say it right the hell now. Fosse is not a musical. It's a dance review that's quite obvious, and so I must ask it to step aside. Step aside, Mr. Fosse. Maybe Fosse could have won the Best Dance Review Award that year, but that award didn't exist, and so you must step aside, Mr. Fosse. It's time for Parade to get its due. Huh. My husband, Chris, made a very good point while I was prepping for this episode, namely that Parade may have stumbled because it reminded too many voters of Ragtime. This makes a lot of sense. Ragtime had premiered only a year earlier and tackled a lot of the same issues as Parade. It's even set within the same general period of time in America. But despite their similarities, it's really no contest in my mind. Parade succeeds where Ragtime fails because it's more conservative in scope. It drills down into a single event and hits payload after payload, whereas Ragtime touches on 30 to 40 events and takes almost nothing of substance from them. By not wasting its energy on trying to encapsulate every facet of early 20th century life in America, Parade has more to spare when it comes to developing character and theme. Ah, developing character and theme. What a concept, am I right? Ragtime, and I say this with all due respect to Mr. Terrence McNally, Ragtime is for tourists. Parade is for people who actually want to pay attention. I am such a snob. Let's rank the show. I'm going to put Parade at number seven on our list. Ah, yes, that's right. Between Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street at number six, and Man of La Mancha at number eight. Now, as always, if you want to see how we have ranked all of the musicals we've covered against each other, you can go to our Twitter profile, at MusicalManPod, click on the pinned tweet, we'll take you to a Google Sheet. If you go to the second tab, you can see that full list. It's true. Number one, a chorus line, all the way at the bottom, Miss Saigon. Number 51, Miss Saigon isn't going anywhere anytime soon. Miss Saigon sucks. <laughs> <laughs> show-related ephemera. Okay, so we don't have anything wacky for you. You know how I love a bit of wacky show-related ephemera. But, you know, Parade is sort of a, a serious... <laughs> It's a serious adult show, so maybe maybe a wacky maybe a wacky bit of ephemera wouldn't really be appropriate, even if it did exist, and it doesn't. Instead, we're going to hear Jeremy Jordan and Laura Bonatti sing, This is not over yet. This is a rehearsal for a 2015 Avery Fisher Hall concert. Let's hear that now.
Yes, wonderful. I want to take this moment to announce that Jeremy Jordan is a cream pie cutie. That's right. Welcome to the club. The Cream Pie Cutie Club welcomes Jeremy Jordan. But not just Jeremy Jordan. Oh, no, no. We're announcing two cream pie cuties this week. That's right. Two new cream pie cuties. The other is Tommy Bracco. Bracho? I like to think it's Bracho. Oh, my goodness gracious. Oh, great balls of fire. Jeremy Jordan and Tommy Bracho, you are our new cream pie cuties. Congratulations. Now, normally we would take a ride on the musical carousel at this point in the show to determine what musical we're going to talk about next week, right? But because Jonathan is our new $10 a month patron, that means he has earned the right to dictate what musical we talk about next week. That musical was a 2000 nominee for the Tony Award for Best Musical. It only ran for 68 performances. It was written by Michael John Lacusa, right? I wrote down MJ. <laughs> MJ Lacusa's The Wild Party. That's right. The Wild Party is what we're going to be talking about next week. Thank you again so much, Jonathan, for being a patron. Speaking of Patreon, go to patreon.com slash musicalmanpod. Be like Jonathan. Become a patron. Support the show financially if you are able to. I would love it if you did. You can donate one, three, five, or ten dollars a month. If you donate one dollar a month, you're going to get a verbal shout out each and every week. Let's do that now. Jonathan, Mark S, Rob, Shauna, Shiante, Roberto, Jordan, Ashley, Chris, JC, Jenna, Aaron, Lily, Haley, Brandon, Brad, Matt, Zach, Marisol, thank you so much. That's your verbal shout out for this week. You also get bonus episodes every now and again. We have bonus episodes about the 73rd annual Tony Awards, the trailer for the film Cats, ABC's The Little Mermaid Live, remember that, <laughs> and my full review of Cats, as well as my full review of Chicago Shakespeare Theater's production of Emma, the musical adaptation of Jane Austen's Emma. We also have a brand new $1 a month series. That's right, it's called Radio Boy. This is a weekly short form series for which I take a closer look at myself and the songs that make me feel more like myself. It's more confessional, it's more casual, it's deeper, it's more revealing. I'm less on, I'm really on right now. <laughs> I turn myself off for Radio Boy, and if you want to hear that, you can donate $1 a month. Now, now let's say you go up one tier to $3 a month. What do you get? Well, you get everything I've already mentioned, and you also get a musical shout-out, just like the one we gave Jonathan this week. You get a musical shout-out in the style of a character, actor, or composer of your choosing. Jonathan wanted to hear from Elaine Stritch, so we got her, baby. We got her. We also give you season one, 10 episodes of Wildcats Everywhere, the high school musical podcast. That series has wrapped at this point. It's fully available. 10 episodes, $3 a month. Come on, you get all of it, all all at once. Now let's say you move up to the $5 a month tier. What do you get at that point? Well, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus you get to start the musical carousel and determine what show I discuss here on the podcast. Jonathan got to do that. Ah, oh, you know that. He picked the wild party. You also get season one 12 episodes of All I Ask of You, the advice show hosted by the Phantom of the Opera, and you get access to our ongoing Broadway in Chicago review series. Yes, that's true. And if you're a $10 a month patron like Jonathan, you get everything I've already mentioned, plus... Season 1, 12 episodes of The Snub Club, a series dedicated to Broadway musicals that were never nominated for the Tony Award for Best Musical. We talk about Amelie, Merrily We Roll Along, Flahooly, American Psycho, Be More Chill, Jekyll and Hyde, Allegiance, It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman, The Bridges of Madison County, speaking of Jason Robert Brown, A Doll's Life, Aida, and Jesus Christ Superstar. Oh, hours and hours of coverage. You gotta hear it. Give me $10 a month, and you can hear it, I tell you. All of your donations go toward the purchase of cast recording, renting movies,
movie adaptations of musicals and offsetting the cost of being hosted through Podbean. If we ever get to a point where we're bringing in $100 or more in total donations, I will produce M3, The Movie Musical Man, a monthly series for which I will watch trilogies of movie musicals that are tied by a common theme. Oh, I'm really looking forward to that series. Come on, let's get across that threshold. Let's get M3, The Movie Musical Man. Come on! If you're listening to the show through Apple Podcasts, take a moment to write a five-star review. Thank you very much in advance. If you're streaming the show, you're likely doing it through Podbean, musicalmanpod.podbean.com, or Stitcher. You can follow us on Twitter at musicalmanpod and email me at musicalmanpod at gmail.com. I love getting emails. Let go of my emails. Thanks, as always, to Patty and Benny. They may not be here with me today, but they are with me in spirit. Thank you to Alex Green for our beautiful logo, and thank you to Zach Little for our fabulous music. Oh, you know what that sound means. Yes, just when the fun is starting comes the time for parting. Oh, well, we'll catch up some other time, specifically on the next episode of The Musical Man. So long, farewell, auf Wiedersehen, and good night. Come from, they ain't had any learning. Run.